I'm John Torek. And I'm Danny Sullivan. And you're listening to Speaking of Design. Bringing you the stories of the engineers and architects who are transforming the world one project at a time. Today we'll take you to Santa Monica, known for its cool ocean breeze, lively beachfront pier, and a civically engaged community. Which means when you go to build a rail maintenance facility, residents expect more than a cookie cutter solution. But our story begins with something that greater Los Angeles is well known for. As you can imagine, if you hear any of the rumors about uh, Los Angeles, there's a great deal of traffic out here. If you are trying to get from Santa Monica to Los Angeles in a car, good luck to you. So I-10 West from downtown to the ocean is always congested. Any time of day you go on a freeway, there's always traffic. It could not be more exciting. We have the largest transit construction program in, in the nation right now which is both a blessing and a curse. It's really exciting to be part of something extremely meaningful and useful to you know the citizens of Los Angeles, but it's also a lot of work. That's Tim Lindholm, Executive Officer for Program Management and Capital Projects for LA Metro. That's short for the Los Angeles County Metropolitan Transportation Authority, the agency responsible for planning, building, and operating the transportation network for nearly 10 million people, or about one-third of California's residents. I'm a geologist by training and trade, and so I hired into Metro Los Angeles in 2000, working as a geologist on the subway. And I came to work for Metro because I was interested in transit. I've always been kind of a train geek. Eventually, Tim was looking to make a career change, so he took on more construction management and became more focused on the transit side of things. He could not have picked a more exciting time to be part of LA Metro. Since 2000, a city known for standstill traffic and limited transit has nearly doubled its options for rail transit. They've added more than 50 miles of new tracks and 45 new rail stations. They won't be stopping there either, and with good reason. The host city of the Games of the 33rd Olympiad 2024, Los Angeles 28. Hosting the Olympics means you'll have more than 10,000 athletes coming to your town plus their families, coaches, sponsors, media, security, and hundreds of thousands of fans. The last thing anyone wants to experience is adding that to the nearly 400,000 vehicles on the 405 every day. So Mayor Eric Garcetti announced a 28 by 28 plan to complete 28 major transit projects by 2028 in time for the games. Many of the projects had already been planned as part of a huge transit expansion that voters approved through a permanent sales tax known as Measure M. The measure is expected to generate $860 million per year for transportation projects. And we passed Measure M, the nation's largest ever local infrastructure package. Thank you, LA County voters, because with your help, we will generate $120 billion, build and expand 15 rapid transit lines, fix our freeways, and create 777,000 middle-class careers over the next four decades. Measure M was an expansion of a 2008 ballot initiative known as Measure R. One of those Measure R projects was completed in 2016, bringing light rail back to Santa Monica for the first time since 1953. The Expo Line, which had been uh, in design, 
was fully funded by uh, by uh, Measure R. So it was kind of our our first project in our current transit expansion that we're undergoing right now. So it's a pretty meaningful project for us. It was a return of rail service back to Santa Monica from downtown. But the Expo Line also will play a big role in the greater transit puzzle as LA Metro expands service in preparation for 2028. The Expo Line was built in two phases, from downtown LA to Culver City and from Culver City to Santa Monica. And when that second phase opened, Tim said, LA Metro had a new need. Once we got the full complement of trains that it takes to operate the Expo line, which is 46 light rail vehicles, we needed a maintenance shop along the line that we could store our trains, but we also do maintenance, cleaning. It's where our uh, operators check in and out and get their assignments. That's where training's done. So it's the operation space for the entire Expo line. And uh, by the time we finally built the line all out to Santa Monica, we needed to have this facility built in order to operate. When LA Metro was ready to move forward with its Division 14 rail maintenance facility, they turned to Maintenance Design Group, or MDG, which is now HDRMDG. Maintenance Design Group's specialty is the programming, planning, and design of operation and maintenance facilities. That's Don Lighty, Managing Principal and Facility Design Director. These facilities can be for transit agencies, cities, counties, municipalities, public work agencies, airports, water utilities, electric utilities, community colleges, universities, school districts, the military, federal government, anybody who operates a fleet of vehicles or who has a campus of facilities that require support operation and maintenance facility shops. Don got to start working for the Regional Transportation District in Denver, Colorado. At the time, the city was building four new bus maintenance facilities. I always had a knack for spatial planning and logistics. What we found out was architects and engineers can do drawings, but they don't understand the industrial workflow and function and the safety and efficiency of a bus maintenance facility. So that's kind of what all started it. And since then, I've probably been doing it for the last 42 years and probably done probably over 500, 600 maintenance facilities around the country. Don's firm became nationally renowned experts in vehicle maintenance facility design. He still loves the variety and the challenge of each project. We've done hundreds of these things, and yet no two of them are alike. Different fleets, different geographic locations, different sizes, uh, you know, different climates. All those sort of things really make the mix and uh, uniqueness of each facility a challenge. And so it's what makes it exciting to do these sort of projects for anything from a meter-made cart I think it's one of the smallest things we've done, like a golf cart type thing, all the way up to very large freight and commuter rail trains and everything in between. Fire trucks, police cars, front end loaders, motor graders, <laughs> 30, 40, 60 foot buses, just all sorts of unique vehicles and unique clients. Don's colleague, Darren Penn, a senior facility manager, said LA Metro hired MDG to build what initially sounds like a pretty straightforward rail maintenance facility. The initial concept took up the entirety of the site that was available. It was an old Verizon facility, which had a lot of land, but a lot of more or less paved areas and aged butler buildings. All of those would come down, but the initial concept was to totally encapsulate the 10-acre site and utilize as much space as possible. However, Tim Lindholm from LA Metro said it wasn't quite so simple. 
but I think I probably need to start with Santa Monica first. Santa Monica is often referred to uh, in the area as the People's Republic of Santa Monica. You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting place. There's a certain way of doing things in Santa Monica, and it was not necessarily the most popular thing to build a rail operations and maintenance facility in Santa Monica. It was controversial, and no one really wanted the maintenance facility in Santa Monica, but they wanted the train, right? And to get the train, if you're going to get the good, you have to live with a little bit of the bad. If you're going to get the rail line, you're going to get the yard. On top of that, the project site was in a neighborhood with a history of getting stuck with infrastructure that they didn't want in their backyard. So we knew that property was perfect for us, but it also had another interesting dynamic in that the neighborhood that this property in is called the Pico neighborhood. It's part of Santa Monica, but it's also got, let's call it a bit of a chip on its shoulder for good reason. In the 60s, when they built Interstate 10 Freeway, it kind of cut the Pico neighborhood off from the rest of Santa Monica. And then there also happens to be a great deal of city of Santa Monica infrastructure in that neighborhood, you know, like the trash hauling yard, the city vehicle maintenance yard, that kind of thing. Which Tim said set the stage for the challenging task of bringing the community into the conversation. We had a community that was less than thrilled with us being there. Elected officials from Santa Monica who were also less than thrilled we were going to do it, but knew they had to do it for the good of the project, and we're going to hold our feet to the fire to provide a project that was going to be a positive for the neighborhood. Darren said it wasn't quite opposition, but a lot of concern about the project. Not a lot of resistance, but a lot of apprehension about the project in general. My recollection is that the exposition line coming through the community was thrust upon them, and they weren't excited about the idea of having trains coming through their community, even less so to have a maintenance facility. So to design something that was functional, yet seemingly inobtrusive, on the surrounding areas was important. Tim said the design team went to that first meeting with an open mind. We decided to have our first community meeting when we hired HDR to do the design and to just throw away every piece of work that had been done. We went there with no paper, no pictures, just us talking and listening. Our first community meeting probably had about 100 people in the neighborhood, all of them a little on edge, and all we did is listen and hear them out in terms of what their fears were of the facility, what they wanted us to address, and the things that they were going to expect as we uh, progressed this design. Darren said the meeting drew a unique mix of neighbors based on the project's location. It's interesting the side is bordered on one side by a residential area and on the opposite sides by more commercial and light R&D areas. Specifically, an IMAX theater production building is right next to our property, and across the main line, there is a series of recording studios. If you found out a rail maintenance facility was going in across the street from your home, you'd probably have many of the same concerns the neighbors had for Don's team. When we first went in to meet with the neighborhood, it was very, I would say, tenuous. Some of the first questions were, there's going to be diesel smoke belching out all over the place, and there's going to be noise and all those sort of things. Another member of Don's team, John Holler, brought a calm demeanor to the public meetings. John is a senior facility design manager from Murfreesboro, Tennessee. He said overcoming the perception of what the facility would look and sound like was the first challenge opportunity to present a good design and change the mentality of rail yards, that they're not heavy, smoky, dirty train yards. 
that they're places where people worked and part of the community. In school, John initially pursued civil engineering, but soon he felt drawn to architecture. John's appreciation for the final visual comes in handy when he's talking to a community where that's a big concern. The sessions where the community stakeholders work with the project owner and design team are called charrettes. There's pieces of the charrette where the design team and the people that have to actually draw a solution or write down an idea and brainstorm about things in a uh, energetic, focused atmosphere and a short duration to pull all these ideas together, put them down on paper, get them in front of somebody, present those in a cohesive and understandable manner and have a informed discussion and respond quickly to comments that might come out of right field. So the process gets a lot of opinions and ideas out on the table. Everyone gets to hear the priorities of other constituents, see the design challenges of the site, and build upon each other's ideas. But take that input and put them back into that think tank, respond to that, and present other solutions in a fast and furious fashion, but get buy-in from everybody. And so there's a lot of design development done in a short amount of time, but a lot of it is drawing ideas, but a lot of it is presenting those ideas ideas too, so, you know, not just uh, lines on paper, but drawing and presenting those with explanation behind them so that they're understood because uh, drawings aren't easy to understand sometimes. Darren said the project faced unusual challenges. Facilities like this usually aren't built in neighborhoods or on such a small site. Being in such a tight, urban, suburban kind of community that everybody's in a lot more close quarters, and I'd really never seen that before. Most times we're building a bus or a rail facility, and it's on a large piece of land in a designated area where it's really highly industrialized already, and there isn't a lot of sensitivity to the actual finished product. Tim said the community's concerns came as no surprise to L.A. Metro. What they were interested in is all the things that I was kind of interested in solving for them. Things like noise, light pollution, wheel squeal from trains. And they were interested in the visual. What is this thing going to look like? They were interested in noise mitigation. Are you going to build sound walls? That sort of thing. In addition to the worries neighborhood residents had about a loud facility, Don said nearby businesses were concerned for very specific reasons. <laughs> There was a business to the north that was very vibration sensitive because it's the producing studios for IMAX theaters. And then behind, across the main line from the maintenance facility, were a lot of other Hollywood or theater-related businesses. Darren said the design team included Marlon Hale, an acoustical consultant whose expertise proved critical to the project. I think we all learned something about sound transmittance and assumptions that we had about sound generating and what walls do and what trees do and what adjacencies have, have to do with certain components. But we also learned about our individual expectations, as even as designers and as the community sees it. John said part of the job was walking neighbors through the daily operations at the facility and letting them know what the noise level would actually be. We were open book in front of them to 
say these are the operations on site, these are the hours of operation, this is when a garbage truck is going to show up and put backup alarms and it's not going to be at 10 o'clock at night when you're trying to go to bed or 5 o'clock when you're not quite awake yet, maybe midday when you're gone, trying to understand when people are home and when people are at work and the sound studios that were adjacent. Of course, Don and Darren said what the building looked like was important too. And they were still worried about the visual part of it. And that's when we started talking about using the building to block the yard and using the face of the building as a aesthetically pleasing view for them because a lot of them lived right across the street. Talked about aesthetics, materials, finish, dream scenarios. John said they needed a balance between minimizing the sound impact and maximizing the view neighbors would see every day. Initially, somebody wants to just put up a big wall. I don't want to see anything that goes on in the yard. Well, then you design a big wall or something. And like, well, I don't. That's a huge wall. I don't want to see that big wall. That's uglier than probably what's on the other side of it. And so then you start to refine the design on what the wall looks like and the height and incorporate landscaping. And so visual concern was evident from everybody. The site is just under 10 acres, so it's about two blocks long. The original plan was to build the maintenance facility on the southwest corner of the site. Then, there would be a space for the city of Santa Monica to put a two-acre park on the east side of the site. But through the Charette process, Don said the team envisioned a new layout for the site with multiple benefits. Our concept was to spread the park along the whole edge of the site so it's about two blocks long, so that all the residential neighborhoods across Exposition were able to benefit from the park, but then also stretch out the building to make it a through shop instead of a stub end shop and use the building and its architecture and its mass, if you will, to screen the yard visually and acoustically. Tim explained how the new layout solved the sound concerns. So we did a lot of the things we came back with is we had moved some of the noisier equipment around to be behind sound walls or behind the building. We elongated the maintenance building to be almost across the whole site. It's a 35-foot-high building, and that provides sound mitigation to about 80% of the site. The sound mitigation is the building itself, and in the other areas, we built 12-foot sound walls. The workshop participants got to vote, and they chose the new layout. But remember, even though the building was serving to block sound and screen out the visual of some of the rail operations, it still had to look like Santa Monica. The team worked with RNL Design, which is now part of Stantec, on the building's architecture. It was something contextually fit in with the surrounding commercial buildings. Being in Santa Monica, all of those buildings have to have a higher sense of design style to them. But in particular, this building is indicative of what we would characterize as more of an industrial design context that fit really well with the site. But let's not get carried away. The community wanted the building to look good, and the architects had a style in mind. But the facilities still had a job to do. These facilities are heavily equipment laden. They're really functionally driven. And on the old adage, you know, form follows function, well, it's, it really is true with the rail facility. There's only a certain way the vehicles can go into the bays and work functionally. And that's Mark Ellis, who served as the technical team leader for industrial workflow and equipment on the project. It had to work functionally. And then we could wrap it into a, an envelope that made it aesthetically pleasing. So that was sort of our daily mantra was, okay, does this really work? Mark's knack for blending form and function is not altogether different from his highly varied talents coming out of high school. I 
started college on a um, actually a combined art and baseball scholarship at a junior college, and I was taking some fine arts courses, but also was very interested in architecture in high school. Although injuries curtailed his baseball career, Mark went on to get a degree in urban geography with an emphasis on urban planning. That background helped Mark address the community's concerns with sound and light emanating from the facility while making it an efficient operation. It's not necessarily a heavy repair facility. It's more of a running repair. So there are six positions in the building for trains to go in or service and inspection where all three levels of the vehicle are looked at, the lower part where the wheels and trucks are and the power units for those. So there's a lower level work area for that. There's cab access or a car access level, which is the ground level, that allows the maintenance technicians to get in and do interior work, electronic work on signage inside the vehicle, the doors, any mechanism within the the car itself, the lighting, air conditioning systems, things like that. Then on the upper level, operators can look at power systems on top of the train. A lot of the systems that power the train are actually located on the top of the vehicle. Uh, Pantograph systems, various inverters and motors and things like that. Although the bulk of the work provides preventative maintenance, the facility also has areas for heavy repair, wheel truing, and undercarriage cleaning, as well as a general wash to keep the cars ready for riders. The exterior wash building and cleaning platforms that were a daily function where every train would go through those cleaning functions every day and then placed in the yard ready for deployment the next day. When the team re-envisioned the site, stretching the narrow facility the entire length of the property instead of having more of a box shape in the corner, that actually helped improve operations. Tim said that was a huge benefit to LA Metro. The first concepts, the ones that we threw in the trash, had a stub end shop. And what that means is that the trains can't go through the shop. They need to pull in and back out. That's very inefficient for us. It also had a loop track. In a loop track, which trains use to go around the facility, the tight curves on a loop track sometimes end up with wheel squeal, which was going to be a problem for us noise-wise. So the way we oriented the site and the building cleaned up the simplicity of the train storage and movement. We got rid of the loop track, and we elongated the building and used it so that we could pull through trains all the way through the shop. Don said the facility has some unique technical features, too. This was the first facility of its kind to have upper-level platforms without safety rails. And at first you think, well, that doesn't sound real safe. But we know that facilities that are designed with safety rails have safety problems in their own right, in that if somebody takes out a rail and forgets to put it back, it's actually more dangerous than if there were no rail there at all, because you think there's a rail there and there's not. We've also seen safety railings that when they've been taken out have fallen either onto the vehicle or down onto the floor below, which is not safe. And Mark explained the team's innovation to replace the railings by controlling access to the upper level. Our approach was don't let people up on the upper level platforms unless a vehicle is in place and make sure you have safety platforms on both sides and control the access approach to getting to the upper level that's safe because we have to lock out the, the overhead wire, electricity of that wire. So when we finally saw that from an access standpoint and making sure it was safe and functional, we, we put a big check mark by that. And we said that's, that's, a, that's a great innovation to light rail maintenance facilities. Tim said one other innovation that's coming will help LA Metro save thousands of dollars in the future. But what I'm most excited about is that through the energy modeling we did on the project, 
we were able to design a facility that we're calling net zero energy ready, meaning that Metro is working on putting some solar panels on top of the roof. We're in the process of procuring that right now. As soon as we get those 250 kilowatts of solar panels up on the roof, it will be the first net zero energy rail operations facility ever built in the U.S., as far as I know the world. And that's really exciting. What that means is that it, it, it generates as much power as it uses. On top of the functional efficiency and technical innovations, the facility makes a better place to work for the 250 employees of LA Metro who call it home. Our management that works at Division 14, if there's one thing they complain about, it's that they have to give so many tours. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a very popular tour destination. And it's just part of their jobs, and they're proud of it. Our, our workers are really proud of the facility and love working there, so they're happy to do it. But it does uh, take, a, take a fair amount of time. John described a final design that feels far less industrial for the operators and maintenance team working there daily. A relative position to the ocean and the climate in Southern California provided a lot of opportunity to do things in the building or with the building that we can't do in a lot of other climates. And we did some really fun things with the building designed to take advantage of that, like natural ventilation and lighting materials, obvious, a lot of choices really to make that were uh, durable and long-lasting, but aesthetically pleasing and fit within the community again. Perhaps more importantly, the project is making an impact on the community. That's the number one priority for operations and maintenance facilities to make sure that the, the either the bus or the rail car is out on the tracks or out on the road providing public transportation so they get up before everybody else gets up, report to work, and they don't, they don't have the opportunity to take a bus or a train to work. So they drive to work, they show up, they report to their work position or to their train, and there's a lot of activity early in the morning. They deploy, they go out in the public streets right away and, and provide service. But it's not just the maintenance facility that's making an impact. The more than two acres of park space is providing more than a buffer for sound. George Ishihara, who served his country also, as, as was said by John, in World War II, and did so with valor and great dignity while his very family was being interned in internment camps in this country was a wrong and were able in a small way, again, to redress that wrong by honoring George Ishihara and his family here today in this beautiful park. So what ended up getting built, which is now called Ishihara Park, named after a World War II veteran, it's a beautiful park designed by Mia Lair and Associates, a great landscape architect here. And it's kind of a series of rooms where a variety of things happen. The park acts as a landscape piece of greenery, and it has like features like community gardens and interactive spaces. There's like a dog park area. It really is a community effort and a real city effort. There's a learning garden where kids can learn how to compost and grow food. There's a play area. There's some interesting stormwater retention features. There's a grove of trees that were um, reinstalled. The city had removed them from another area and reinstalled them, so there's kind of an older grove, grove of trees. It's just, a, it's just a beautiful park, and the neighbors love it. We love it. Our mechanics and operators that work at the facility use it all the time to go have their lunch, and it's really been just a, just a fantastic thing for the city of Santa Monica and for the Pico neighborhood. Tim said he remembers the moment when he finally took stock of the successful project. There's nothing feels better than when you open the line and you're riding it with the community 
and everyone's riding on the train, happy, so happy they're able to go to the beach on the train. And what I had a fun time, my maiden ride on opening day, the train line goes right by the shop. So I got to look at the shop from the train, uh, which was a great moment. And he could be proud because he knew the rest of the community was happy with the outcome. I feel like we put our best work into this, and it really turned out excellent. From a design and aesthetic and architecture point of view, it's a beautiful building. It's well lit at night. It looks great. Very contemporary architecture, which we think fits in great with the neighborhood. So it's, it's a sharp building. The commercial areas on the other side ended up being thrilled with the project because they ended up uh, getting adequate sound protection, but also, you know, now their employees have great transit service. Darren said the project reminded him of the subtle nature of how a design takes shape. Personally, the magnitude of the project reminds me of something that I'm always surprised by in architecture, that you start with really with nothing, with an idea and drawings and concepts that over time, you, you, it's like looking at yourself in the mirror every day. You don't, you might not notice yourself getting older, but over time, all of a sudden you realize that, you know, something has materialized that wasn't there before. Which John found pretty rewarding, given the way they were able to incorporate the community's ideas in that design. Because it is a great community. So when you get into that environment and you're able to anticipate and respond to things that you know it's a concern, then it's fun to do because you solved it. For more information on this podcast, visit hdrinc.com slash speakingofdesign. You'll find links to pictures, articles, and more information about this project. If you like what you heard, be sure to rate us or leave feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.